Would you open up your Bibles to Matthew 18, please? We'll begin with verse 10 and read through the end of 23. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains? And go and search for the one that is straying. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it much more or more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, stop a second. That's the context for what comes next. So often... People who know the Bible, you say Matthew 18, they say, yeah, yeah, one brother go to another brother and tell him how he's sinned. Then take two, and then tell it to the church. But the whole context of it is what we just read, which is the one sheep that's gone out and is straying. In that context, then, he says this. If your brother sins, go out and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am with them also. There I am in their midst. Then Peter came and said to him, Now listen, look at me. What did I just do? I'm reading scripture and I go, why am I laughing? As you read the Bible, laugh. Why? Because you see the legalist in you coming out. And Peter's so helpful because he says what we're thinking. Yeah, but how far am I supposed to take this, right? Okay, so here Peter is, right? And, and uh, he's so heavenly-minded, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? (laughs) Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. This is the word of the Lord. So let's take it from the top. Verse 10, all right. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. So you can say that that's, that's the umbrella over the whole mess, 
all right? Don't despise one of these little ones. Now, when you say that today, everybody's so used to thinking of little ones being babies or infants or toddlers that you think that's what Jesus means. And, of course, it is true that the unborn, the newborn, toddlers, children, teenagers, and although they might feel it's paternalistic to say this, college students, they are little ones, all right? But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about is those who, because they have come to God with the faith of a little child. You know how Jesus kept saying that you need to become like a little child. And so those who come to Christ with humility and simple Abba Father, they're the little ones. All right? And so uh, Sam Westra in my first church, 94 years old, about 6'6", dignified, known throughout the community as the man that they could set their watches by as he drove every day to the nursing home to brush his wife's hair. He is a little one. He's a little one. And Jesus says that we are not to despise the little ones, right? See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, I want to emphasize that word one. Um, It's very easy to claim to have concern, even love, for the masses. And it's very important that you realize that an awful lot of what goes on in the church and in the university is, and in writing, is a claim to be very concerned about the masses. But Jesus is not saying, see that you don't despise the the 99. He's very clearly focused on the one. I want to read to you a book that, if, if you're involved in intellectual pursuits, this book should be required reading for you if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. It's by the Oxford historian Paul Johnson. The book is called The Intellectuals. Every chapter he goes through and deals with one intellectual after another. And this particular chapter is on Tolstoy, the Russian novelist. And Tolstoy was a man that was of leftist persuasions and was very, very committed to showing himself to be magnanimous towards the masses, right? You know, he he sold everything. He was like always trying to show that he was an advocate for the masses of humanity. In this chapter, we pick up the account of how Tolstoy, in the heat of a moment of charitable fervor to the masses, abandoned his wife. Sonia, and as he abandoned her, abandoned their sick four-month-old, Alexei, and set off into the country to lead a large act of social reform. Johnson writes, this desertion, as Tolstoy's wife Sonia saw it, provoked a letter which struck a new note of bitterness in their relationship. It sums up not only her own difficulties with Tolstoy, but the anger most ordinary people come to feel in coping with a great humanitarian intellectual. And this is what she wrote to her husband at that time. She said, my little one is still unwell, and I am very tender and pitying. 
you and your spiritual guru, Soitiev, may not especially love your own children, but we, simple mortals, are neither able nor wish to distort our feelings or to justify our lack of love for a person by professing some love or other for the whole world. And so this is what you see as a theme over and over again with intellectuals, is that everything's hypothetical and it never comes down to the local. Jesus was the opposite. You look at Jesus' ministry, the disciples were always trying to get him to be big picture. You know, little kids would come up to him and say, get away from him, he's too important to mess around with the little kids. Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. And then he took them in his arms and he blessed them. And when it comes to elders and pastors and older women and deacons in this church and in every church that follows scripture, a basic requirement for those who exercise authority is what? That they rule their own households well. And you say, rule? I don't need any ruler. And I say, yeah, you're an idiot. What that means is that your only ruler will be President Obama. And so often we say to young men who are rebellious in their parents' homes, you realize that your rejection of your parents means that you will be turned over to the civil magistrate. It used to be understood that the mediating institutions protected us from having to submit to the civil magistrate. It used to be that the civil magistrate would try anything possible to keep things from coming to him. And that means the church, the home, the kitchen sink, anything you can pull in. And so Jesus was always focused on the one as opposed to the many. And the way Jesus ministered and taught and preached was with an eye to the individual. There is no love of your family that is not particular, specific, and singular. Okay? So Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And then he says, what do you think? And that's to pull your brain into his discourse. You're supposed to say, well, I don't know. What do I think? So Jesus says, what do you think? All right, so he's invited you to think about it. And then he says this. If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? Okay, so the hundred sheep are his flock. So this is the hundred sheep. They're his sheep. They're not, not his sheep. They are his flock, right? And he says, okay, I, I have a hundred sheep. One has gone astray. What do you do? You talk about being a rancher and how many you run on Sunday morning and you say, I can't allow my time to be wasted with one when there are 99 that are willing to be here. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, 99 came, we shouldn't neglect to feed them for the sake of one that's off trying to dive off the cliff. What a waste of time. But what Jesus says is that the church is supposed to be known for zeal for the one. Now, when we hear this, we think, well, yeah, I guess that does sort of go along with the university's focus on minorities. 
and I say a pox upon them. Because the minorities they're talking about are minorities of, of ethnicity and race. And when I see a university person show a care for the minorities and for the one by going way out west to the double wide that's decaying, and to somebody who has not graduated junior high school, notice I left out from. You know, people, I'm educated, people who couldn't give a rip about their degrees, people who are completely salt of the earth, Galilee of the Gentiles. Then we'll begin to think that maybe we're dealing with the university understanding to go out and seek the one. And if you want to be tested today about whether or not the spirit of what Jesus has said here occupies your heart, I want you to look at how you respond to people in this church who have no way of ever paying you back for what you give to them. Does that make sense to you? I want you to think right now about this church. What's, who's the person that you most hope you don't have to talk to? Who is it? You say, oh, no one. I say, yeah, 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 right. Or, right. <laughs> there are people here you don't like. Women especially. Oh, man. You know, you never admit it, but my goodness, you do keep tabs. It's one of the nice things about men is they tend not to keep tabs as much, you know. And so you are to think of the one who is astray. Now, what does it mean to be astray? What it means is that they're off sinning. That's what astray means. They're not living for God. They're not coming to church. I remember the Sunday we had a guy who was under discipline, public discipline, for stealing from our offering plates. <laughs> i never forget this. This is a good story. I think I can tell it. It's far enough away, right? It was an older man, sweet as they come, wonderful wife, wonderful daughter. And one day I had a guy come to me, a dear friend of mine, a deacon, and he said, I think so-and-so is stealing from the offering plate. And I looked at him, and I just started roaring. I, you know, I told him he was, he was a nincompoop. I said, there's absolutely no way, you know. And I said, you know, dude, get some proportion, you know. What on earth would, and I just completely, you're crazy. Well, two years later, Several of the deacons thought that they saw him stealing from the offering plate. And so they went back into the foyer and they said, would you please empty your pockets? <laughs> and I didn't hear about it until they had the goods, right? And so sure enough, this man, I think for a period of 20 to 25 years as we talked to him, had been everywhere he took offering, he'd been stealing from the offering plate, right? It's just normal kinds of things that we, we as sinners do right? Right? Well, that's not the purpose of telling this story. The purpose of the story is, so he went under discipline, and because it was uh, a sin that a number of people had noticed, we needed to deal with it publicly, all right? Then after we dealt with it, well, you know what people always do, right? What, what do you think happened? He didn't come to church, now, does anybody here have problems understanding that? 
You know, if you'd been stealing from the offering plate, they'd rebuked you publicly. Would you be in church next Sunday? Those of you that aren't laughing, I don't trust you. <laughs> I don't think I'd be in church, right? Rob Hooper was one of the pastors at the time. And so he saw he wasn't here. And so what did he do? Got in his car, drove over to the man's house. And as he pulled up to the man's house, all of a sudden he saw the man's pickup. Or no, no, he went up to the door and knocked. I, I'm, I'm having trouble remembering exactly how this. Went up to the door and knocked. And as he was knocking at the door, he saw the, the, the pickup truck take off behind the house and start driving out across fields behind the house. So Rob took off after him in his car. <laughs> And listen, that's beautiful. That's exactly what Jesus means. One has gone astray and you leave the 99. There we were at worship and what's the pastor? He's left all the sheep that are on the hillside and he's gone out to find the one that's lost, right? And if I recollect correctly, he caught him. And he did come to church, if I remember correctly. Now listen, there, is only, there are only two ways of looking at that. And one way is you call it a cult. And the other is you say, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And there's no neutral. The mind of sinful man cannot understand such an action. The mind of sinful man can't understand submitting yourself to authority. But what a precious gift to that man. Good old Rob Hooper. If it makes you feel better, he had a PhD in economics. The shepherd. What a precious story. You have 90, you have 100 sheep, one strays. I don't have it on the overhead, but if you'd listen to me, I want to read a little bit from Acts chapter 20, because Jesus teaches us to do it, but then we see the Apostle Paul describing how he did it. In Acts 20, he's with the elders from the church in Ephesus, and he's seeing them for the last time, saying goodbye to them, and he's saying to the elders, be faithful in going after the lost sheep. Even from your own numbers, men are going to rise and distort the truth. They're going to be wolves from your own number. You guys do your work, right? And he says this. He's reminding them of what he was like. He says, you know, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. So here we have a picture of a shepherd that's like Jesus is describing. And he says, I was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Now, why do you think he had tears? Well, he had tears because he was spending hour after hour after hour with Clint, with Ginger, and with the children. That's what happened this last Sunday, and it was a culmination of years of work. The elders tenderly met with Clint over and over, tenderly met with Ginger, tenderly met with the children. And that's where the tears come. You know, you're not a judge sitting up on a bench banging a gavel. The only power we have is moral suasion. That's it. 
And so Paul describes this very kind of work, talking about with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And so Paul had to contend with the failures in the church that caused him tears, but then also with persecution from outside the church, from the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you, and this is my favorite part, publicly and from house to house. And I always say, every time I read that in front of a congregation, do you really want your pastor in your house? And then he says, day and night. So the Apostle Paul, with tears, in your house at night. And that's the very thing that every seminary in the country teaches you not to do. Because the first principle of pastoral ministry according to seminaries is don't ever do anything that can get you accused of being a cult or can divide the congregation. Well, when you up the ante on the straying sheep, it always has the danger of dividing the congregation. And the Apostle Paul was flat out every minute of his life. <laughs> he loved the lost sheep. He remembered Barnabas coming to him, right? And so he was out after him. And, you know, the truth is the Apostle Paul sinned all the time as he did that work. You know, we have this image of the Apostle Paul being perfect. He wasn't perfect. He sinned as he did the work. It's very interesting. This last week, there was a man who has been banished to the hinterlands of the United States. In other words, in the realm of the pastorate, he's out in the boondocks way out in the boondocks. And he started writing about uh, unfaithfulness in my denomination. And it was a very sweet thing because he was tender in the way he wrote. And, uh, but he did expose our sins as pastors and elders in, in my denomination, my former. And I got an email this last week from him saying that he has written up an apology and that I should go and read his apology, put it online. About a year ago, he decided he was going to take all that stuff and, and, and get rid of it. I called him up and I said, but you've been doing wonderful, wonderful work going after the lost shepherds, you know. Well, now a year later, he's decided that he's just going to ask everybody's forgiveness. And he basically says, you know, I was a sinner to do that work, and I ask your forgiveness, and really, if I'd been more this, that, and the other thing, then I would, I would not have written an awful lot of what I wrote. And so I was very sad, and I sent an email to my brother, and I said, you know, this is so sad. And my brother wrote back, and he said, he said something like, as if any man would ever think that you wouldn't sin while you did such work. So you give yourself to the discipline of your children every single time you discipline your children, mother. You're guilty because they're in daycare. <laughs> you're guilty because you're impatient. You're guilty because they haven't had their naps. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you see your sin always when you discipline your children. And it's the same with elders. We always sin in the process of doing discipline. Since when has God's standard been 
that no man can preach, no man can discipline, and no mother can spank until there's no sin. That's Satan. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He tells you to be impotent until you're perfect. Well, how are you going to get perfect if you're... You know, what we have to do is give ourselves to being bold sinners. How could Clint be healed if he was... A, a retiring and embarrassed and, and hiding and, you know. He has to be bold and stand in front of us today and say, I'm a lost sheep and I'm returning. And let me tell you, for every man who has such shameful things revealed about him, there are 10, 20, 30, and 40 who leave the church because they refuse to allow the elders to rebuke them. And the apostle of love, John, says they went out from us because why? They were not of us. Otherwise, they would not have gone out from us. And he's the apostle of love. Leaves the 99 on the mountains and goes and searches for the one that is straying. Searches, searches, searches. We had a pastor's conference this week. It was wonderful. There was a young man there who asked a question at the end of it about how if we're going to give ourselves to this work with zeal like the Apostle Paul, then how do we keep people from being afraid of us? And I was the one that got to answer that question. Jake gave it to me. And so I had to decide whether or not it was somebody that knew me who was trying to make a point. You know? Afterwards, I found the man. He told me that he was the one that wrote it. It wasn't from our churches. And uh, he was saying, no, that's about me. He said, people are scared of me. And I looked at him, and what I noticed as I talked to him is that his eyes were like uh, lasers into my eyes. That he pierced me through my eyes as we talked. And of course what I knew was that God had made him to be a searcher. That even as I talked, he was searching my inner spirit through my eyes. And then I knew why people were afraid of him. It turns out he was talking about himself. He didn't say it, you know. And I thought, okay, how's the world going to accept a pastor like this? And I thought, not well. (laughs) Why? Because he's really young. And who is going to let a really young shepherd pierce you with his eyes and be right on the money, right? And I just said to him, you're just going to have to suffer. Do everything you can to love your wife and your children so that they see the tenderness that prevails in your home. But you can't act as if you don't have the gifts. And I talked to him about his eyes. I said, your eyes demonstrate that you love people and that you want to know the truth about them. It's very clear. 
In other words, it's clear that the man did not want to be a disembodied brain reading theology books and feeling superior to everybody. <laughs> if we have one more of them in the Reformed Church today, I spit on them. We don't need more disembodied brains in the Reformed world. We need men that love men. You notice how Jesus never says anything about men being careful to guard their study from their parish? At least Edwards confessed it as a sin. <laughs> and at least Edwards was willing to meet with people if they'd come to his home. And so Jesus says that we're to search. Our eyes search. People get offended that my wife gives me information about them. Dude, I'd be blind without my wife. Yes, I know, because your wife told my wife who told me. Dude, where do you think I'm going to get my information? No, I don't look at Facebook. <laughs> oh, it's so awful. If you people knew what your stuff looks like on Facebook, it just is so damning. I got an invitation to a wedding of a, not somebody that goes to this church, but a relative recently. And so I thought, well, you know, I used to know him. He used to be in my church. I think I'll go see. And it was appalling. It was utterly appalling. No, I don't do Facebook. Except there are a few people that I love who only do Facebook and talk to me on Facebook, and then I have to do it. No, it's not Facebook, but Facebook does tell a lot about you. And I do collect information from Facebook through other people, which gives me plausible deniability. (laughs) Search, search, seek, search, search. We go out and we search. And that's how you're supposed to be with your children It's how you're supposed to be wife with your husband. You're to search for his lostness. Your husband's to do this with you. We are our brother's keeper. And so, look, this last week it came out, the Church of the Good Shepherd, the number fourth most popular search on Google for us is Clear Note Church Cult. Yeah, we take eternity seriously. And we love each other. And is that such a bad thing? I mean, honestly. You know, we could all get drunk and stoned together. I was interviewed for a position, or I was actually offered a position at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Madison, Wisconsin. Frank Lloyd Wright built it, you know. And so the committee took me through the church, a beautiful Tudor home in Shorewood, the nicest center of Madison, you know, and it would be Mary Lee's in my palace right next to the church and the most elite people. And, and as we went through the church, other than all the defects of construction and design that, you know, the, the roof leaked, the floor was radiant heat and none of it worked. You couldn't clean the windows behind the organ because they were a flying V going out. You know, on and on and on. Then we got to the choir room and in the choir room was tons of hard liquor bottles. And they laughed and said, well, this is where we have choir practice. I mean, okay, fine. If you don't want to be a cult, go to the Unitarian Universalist Church, drink hard booze during choir practice. If that's the kind of thing you like and you you don't want to be a cult, but I think that's a cult. 
<laughs> you know, Frank Lloyd Wright for starters. <laughs> and so what we have to do is ask ourselves whether we believe that Jesus gave his life to save one lost sheep. And if so, are we going to be any less zealous in going after him? And when the shepherds come after us, are we going to be humble and say, thank you, I've been buying out here in the wilderness, and I've had one foot in heaven and one in hell, and I was impotent. I could not do what I knew was right. Shepherd of my soul. And then there's more rejoicing over one sheep that comes back than over that dutiful son who's been... (laughs) You know, back there doing exactly what his dad told him to do every step of the way. All right, we're done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Clint and Ginger and the children who have been willing to be weak and wounded and sinful in our presence. We pray, Father, that you will give us very, very deep bonds to them. And that you will make our bonds to them so tender and so deep that they would not think of turning away from us and thereby from you. Father, be merciful to us that we will again learn to love that which is lost, we pray in Jesus' name.